0: This is the Life Church Podcast. You know, last week we, we kicked off this series called Eight Hills, where we're talking about our core values and and we're, you know, we're just diving into what, what makes life church, what's us, you know, so we could call this series as this is an us series. This is who we are. And you'll see this fleshed out all the time. We began last series with our very last Sunday with our very first value, biblical truth where I basically challenged all of us to be intentional about organizing our lives around the teachings of Jesus. That that's really foundation building for us. That once you come in contact with Christ, you begin to hear what he has to say. He has a good idea of how you and I should live our lives for him, right? And so we need to organize our life around, around his teachings and that creates a solid rock foundation um, that for, basically for your, your entire life. Well, as I said last week, that's kind of half of the message, though, of what I really wanted to talk about, because it's our first two values that put together actually make up the whole. It's these two propositions that basically is what creates a life-giving church. Our first two values is biblical truth is our first value, and our second value is God's love. And when those two come together, beautifully come together, it creates this environment, this community that's life-giving. You've, you probably have experienced, you probably have experienced that here, right? Or in some other church where you've been a part of, where they, where they preach the word of God while at the same time lavish the love of God on people who walk through those doors. And that's really the kind of community that we wanna be. We wanna be a community that brings these two together. In fact, one without the other leads to extremes. Like if it's all about biblical truth and we don't f- filter it through God's love, Very often, it lends itself and leads towards religion and legalism. It's all about following rules, about measuring up. And if you don't dress a certain way, you don't look a certain way, you don't act a certain way, you're not a part of this community. That's what happens when it's all about biblical truth without really considering the love of God. On the flip side of that, if it's all about God's love and biblical truth is just kind of a secondary kind of thing that we don't really factor in, that we only really use biblical truth when it really is convenient for us, when it supports my agenda, my ideals. And the rest of it, if, it, if it's, if it's uh, you know, we, we see it as not relevant to us or not important for us or maybe it challenges us too much in a particular area that we're not willing to surrender to God and we cast it aside, we don't really need it, that leads to liberalism and really no, no solid concrete faith at all. So it's the two of these together that makes this complete and worth dying for. Biblical truth, God's love. Today we're going to talk about God's love. And this is the, this is the value that we have posted on the lobby. It's on our website. It's all over the place. God's love, love, the love of God demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ. And when I say demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ, I don't simply just mean his sacrificial death on the cross, which that's very clear God's love for us but also how he lived his life, how he interacted with people, how he loved those, the unlovely, right? How he cared for those who were unworthy. That's also God's love being demonstrated through the person of Christ. That love radically transforms all aspects of a person's life. Now you hear me often, you've heard us often talk about God's love around here. This love that we talk about is not some kind of mushy sentiment that I expect you to have. You know, just we go around, oh, oh I love you, I love you, kind of. Th- that's that's not what we talk about. What we mean when we talk about God's love, what we really mean about lo- what we really mean when we talk about love is action. It's about really saying, "Hey, I do, I do love you, and because I love you, I'm going to do something." I'm going to act upon that. I'm going to, you know what? You're in need. I'm going to. So, so we've, in a very big way, you have shown God's love. You know how you've done that? By saying, we believe in, in reaching people for Christ all around the world. So we're going to sacrifice of our money and give. And so this year, over $300,000 are going to be given. That's God's love in action. That's the kind of love that we're talking about, right? It's a love that's on mission all the time. In fact, Jesus puts it this way. You and I, if we're his followers, if we're his disciples, we will be known by our love. Not by our belief system. Not by the standards that we have. How we dress or how we don't dress. We will be known by our love. That means that when people interact with you, when their lives intersect your lives, they will see something, they will experience something from you, they will experience the love of God. Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels me. Paul gave his life for Christ. He went to various different mission fields. He did that. He was on mission for Christ because the love of Christ was compelling him to do it, is what he says. That's why we support missionaries around the world. That's why we do kingdom builders around here because we're on mission. And why why are we on mission? Because Christ's love, compels us to be on mission. I've spent a large part of my life on mission, whether it's been as a family, we've been in Bangladesh as missionaries, or whether it was planning a church in a little town called Leesville, Louisiana, a very hit town out west Louisiana. <laughs> my wife is looking back, because she's from that part of the world. She doesn't want me to use the word hick. Uh, <laughs> Or whether it's coming here to Iowa and planning this church. We've been on mission for the large, large part of our life. But too often when we talk about mission, it's easy to talk about things like numbers. For example, I did that this morning. I said to you, hey, we're on mission, and here's how we're on mission. $300 thousand dollars. I gave you a figure. And it's easy to get excited about that. It's easy to get excited about buildings when you talk about mission. Like, I could talk about going to Leesville and planning a church, and I could talk to you, talk to you about the demographics. I could talk to, you, talk to you about our leadership strategies. I could talk to you about, you know, the, the average attendance that we had in this church, which wasn't very much. It wasn't a very large church. I could talk about all that, but that stuff is boring, actually, when you talk about missions. I'd rather instead talk to you about ayateo and tell you a story of a person. Uh, New Yorican is the, the term that's used. It's a... Puerto Rican that's raised in New York. She grew up in a really rough, rough background. She sold her body to be able to live. She married a guy who was a, kind of basically a gangbanger. But I remember them walking into my church one Sunday morning, and I was preaching. I was preaching, on, I mean, I don't know. I might have been preaching like on, on community or something else. But when I saw them walking, I knew that I needed to say something different. So I shared the very brief gospel, and I remember Ida and, th- and her husband walking up and giving their life to Christ. Her life transformed when she intersected the love of God. Unfortunately, Ida, because of her background, because of you know, the life that she had lived, uh, she had contracted AIDS and eventually would die of that. But I had the opportunity of, of knowing her and so when I want to talk about Leesville, I don't really want to talk about all these other things. I want to talk about the lives of people whose, whose lives collided with the love of God. And you actually see this in the Gospels as well. You, 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 you see when you read the Gospels, you'll read stories of people whose lives collided with the love of God. In fact, I think if you ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, how was your, how was your mission's trip to earth? Let's call that. That's what it was because it was a mission's trip to earth. How was your mission trip to earth? I don't think Jesus, well, let me tell you about the Sermon on the Mount. I had about 20,000 people there. I don't think he'll start talking about the building program that, you know, we're gonna tear down this, this, this temple and we're gonna build a brand new one. He said that, but that wouldn't be on the top of his list of conversation. I think instead instead he would say, hey, man, let me tell you, on, on your mission trip to earth, Jesus would say, yeah, you know what? I met this guy. His name was Matthew. Matthew was, he was a tax collector. And you know how tax collectors are in this part of the world. I mean, they're pretty bad people. Matthew thought his life was too far gone, too much of a wreck. There was no way that God could ever use Matthew. But you know what? Matthew became one of my disciples. That's what Jesus would say. Hey, Jesus, how was your mission trip to earth? He said, let me tell you about this young woman. She, the Bible says she was an immoral woman. But she knew more about my love than, than the religious leader I was having lunch with that day. She came into that room and she washed my feet with her tears and her hair. You should have seen the look on that Pharisee's face. <laughs> Jesus, how was your mission trip to earth? I was at this house one day and I was preaching away and I could just feel the anointing. God was there. He was present. He was moving. Lives are being touched. And suddenly the roof begins to open up and, and, and these guys are lowering a friend on a, on, a, on a mat down in front of me. They couldn't get in through the door so they had to figure out another way to do it. And so they were lowering him down because these buddies wanted their friend who was paralyzed to be healed. See, Jesus would tell stories of these beautiful collisions. Stories of hopelessness, brokenness, hurt that collide with the love of God. When I use that word beautiful collision, it seems like those words shouldn't go together, right? Collision is, is like messy and it's broken, it's a wreck. It's it's not good. And beautiful, on the other hand, is beautiful. And yet, when you read the scriptures, these two words go together. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can look at this book. When we talk about biblical truth, you can look at this book and say it's a, it's a collection of, of uh, spiritual propositions. Or you can look at this book as a collection of beautiful collisions. Stories of people whose lives were changed when, they, when their lives intersected the love of Christ. Right? Right? You know what I'm talking about because many of you in this room have had one of those collisions. And some of you didn't even know it was coming. Like you came up to a blind intersection and bam, you were hit with the love of Christ. And what would you say? My life was changed forever. Amen? Today what I want to do is I want to to put in tension religion with God's love. We're going to talk about that for just a few minutes because we're going to watch a video towards the end here. Uh, of how, how God's love demolishes religion. We're not about religion here. We're about the love of God and, and, and engaging biblical truth. We're gonna look at a story in John chapter three of a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a, a member of the Sanhedrin. If you, You've probably heard this before, but if you haven't, the Sanhedrin were the, like the, the ruling body of Israel. They were the, the, the religious elders of Israel. 72 in number, and these men were made up of two different camps: Pharisees and Sadducees. So there's two. You think of it like this: Democrats and Republicans. That's what they were, okay? And think of the Sanhedrin as like the Supreme Court. Not gonna have a lot to say about that, but unless, I'm not gonna say anything. But just think about those two. That's the dynamic that's here, right? There's these, there's these Sadducees and there's these Pharisees, and honestly, they pretty much disagreed on everything. They did not get along, but there was one thing that they agreed on, and they agreed that Jesus, Jesus was a threat to them, a threat that needed to be eliminated, and so they banded together in order to get rid of Jesus because he was becoming popular with the people. He was a rabbi that had been a carpenter, and that's, that's kind of embarrassing, right, How can a a carpenter become a rabbi and then on top of that, a rabbi who's very popular with the people? So maybe they were just jealous. So Sadducees and and, and Pharisees, that's who made up this group. Sadducees, to be a Sadducee meant that you were born into that position. There was a bunch of other requirements to be a Sadducee, but, but if it wasn't in your bloodline, you could not be a Sadducee. A Pharisee, on the other hand, is a Jew who had done an incredible amount of studying, an incredible amount of work, He'd earned his way up to that position, to that role. So today we're going to meet this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. He's part of the Sanhedrin. John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. So there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, who was a Pharisee. Okay. So when they say Jewish religious leader, they're implying that he's part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said... We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, he seems humble enough, right? He's approaching Jesus with humility, but he's like, but we're confused because you were once a carpenter, and now you're a rabbi, and you're pretty popular, and it looks like God is with you because you're doing all these signs and wonders, all these miracles that you're performing. Now, I want you to notice when he comes to Jesus, when this collision actually takes place, it says, after dark one evening... He came to him at night. Why did he come to him at night? We, we don't know exactly why. The Bible doesn't really tell us exactly why, but we can assume a bunch of things. He went to him at night probably because he could avoid awkward questions by his colleagues, you know? He didn't want to say, you know, he did to show up at, the, at one of the Sanhedrin's meetings and say, hey, by the way, I saw you the other day talking to that rabble-rouser Jesus. What's up with that? He wanted to maybe avoid that, right? He wanted to spend time with Jesus without others knowing. Maybe you think I could just avoid a collision altogether, right? I don't want this to affect my job. I don't want to get a hit on my income. I mean, I could just avoid this collision and still follow Jesus. So, I'm going to show up at night. That's essentially what happens. And maybe Jesus could have just simply said, "Hey, hey Nicodemus, I realize that this is a real challenge for you. I realize this is very dangerous for you. At least professionally, it's very dangerous for you. So, how about this? Close your eyes, bow your head. I'm going to just repeat a prayer after me." and then you're you're in, nobody has to know. Maybe that's what he thought. Maybe he was coming at night because he wanted to avoid this collision altogether. But as you read the conversation between the two, you realize that a collision was inevitable. In fact, Jesus pretty much answers a question he hasn't asked yet, knowing that he's going to ask this question. This is what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus replied, so he's saying, hey, we know that God is with you and all that kind of stuff, but he, Jesus knows that this guy's a Pharisee and a part of the Sanhedrin, so this is what Jesus says to him. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then they go into this discussion, what does born again mean and all that, but basically, unless you are born by the Spirit into this new kingdom that I'm establishing, you cannot see the kingdom of God, is what Jesus is telling him. Now, I want you to think how this, how this Pharisee Nicodemus, what what it it feels like for for him to hear that, because he spent countless hours studying to have the right degree. I mean, he has he has meticulously followed the letter of the law so that his resume is impeccable. He's followed all the rules. He's gone through all the hoops. Let me just translate it for us. He, you know, he's attended church faithfully. When the offering plate gets passed by, he makes sure that the 10% is always there. He even volunteers in Life Kids so that he can get into the kingdom of heaven. And yet Jesus says, yeah, no, you need to be born again. Sorry, it's not not gonna work. That's not gonna get you into the kingdom of heaven. So here's what I want you to catch in this very brief conversation that, that they're having. At the intersection of religion and Jesus, that's what we're talking about, religion versus Jesus. At the intersection of religion and Jesus is where achieve and receive collide. It's where achieve and receive collide because religion says you've got to achieve it. Some of you grew up that way. Some of you grew up in church where basically it was all about the rules. Follow all the rules and you'll be good with God. And so it was all about doing things, performing, accomplishing more. And in your mind, you thought, if I do all this, maybe, just maybe I can be in. I can be good with God. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, it's not about achieving it. It's about receiving it. It's about receiving the love of the Father. And this is hard for Nicodemus to hear because he's spent his entire life achieving. He has stuffed his pockets with currency, and he shows up to Jesus and he pulls out the currency. And Jesus says, sorry, we don't take that money here. It's not good enough. In fact, <clears throat> in fact, the Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It doesn't go very far. Now, this may be hard for some of you to hear. Because maybe, like Nicodemus, you spent your entire life trying to achieve goodness with God. You've spent your life trying to do what's right and perform and perform and perform. And, and Jesus is basically telling you this is not good enough. It's not good enough. For others of you, this is going to sound like good news because your pockets are empty. You're broke. <laughs> yeah, you, You've tried. You've earned a lot, but you might say to yourself, I've earned a lot, but I pretty much have blown it all too. I've wasted it. I don't have anything left. And so for you, this is going to come to you as freedom. Jesus says, come just as you are. That's why around here you, say all, you hear us say all the time, come just as you are, but don't stay that way. Because it's freedom there. It's not about achieving. It's about receiving what God has already done for you. This is good news. This is freedom for every one of us. It's not what you do. It's what you, what you receive. You get to experience the Father's love. When you simply say, here am I, I come just as I am, whether I've done it, I come to you with a bunch of credentials and resumes and all the good things I've done, but yet it's just not been good enough, or whether I come to you, God, broke and broken and hurting and whatever, here I am, I come just as I am, and at that moment, I get to experience and receive the love of the Father. I don't have time to get into the rest of the conversation between, between Jesus and Nicodemus, but... Jesus then gives the why. The why we're able to simply receive. He says this in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Do you realize that God loved the world? This was written way before you were ever born. Way before you ever said, hey, God, I'm gonna turn my, gl- my glance towards you and accept you as my Lord and Savior. Way before that ever happened, God has loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. At the intersection of religion and Jesus is where achieve and receive collide. The invitation is simple. Just receive the love of God. Just receive the love of God. Come just as you are, but don't stay that way. And this really, this value, this affirms our value of God's love, how God, no matter, no matter who, where you are, or no matter what you've been through, no matter how far down you have fallen, God loves you. There's a story that's current in, our, in these days that you might have heard of a, of a guy named Michael Ketterer. You may not have ever heard that name. He's a nurse by trade, but he's more famously known as one of the contestants on America's Got Talent. His story is a beautiful picture of the father's love. Take a look at this.
1: <clears throat> to get from the side of that stage to that X, it felt like a mile.
2: <laughs> Me and all the kids, we were standing off to the side and we were so nervous.
1: I think the very first judge I looked at was Simon Cowell, and I told him I was 40 years old, and I just remember him taking almost like a deep breath, like, huh, Really? <laughs> I don't have an alternate song choice. I have only one song. I have to go out there and give it my all with this one song.
2: We were all three and that he wouldn't miss a note.
1: But the moment that I stepped out on that stage, it was just extremely special to get to perform a song to my children in front of the world. And I got to tell them how much I loved it.
2: was not on our agenda when we got married
1: not at all As a matter of fact we got married and when we found out you were pregnant we both cried <laughs> I definitely didn't feel like we were qualified to have a child no. especially me I was extremely immature when we had my daughter there was complications she became premature
2: She was born at 3 pounds, 10 ounces.
1: Both of them almost didn't make it through that first night.
2: Michael just looked at the doctors and he goes, look, my wife and daughter will live and not die. And from that point on, I got better, Sophie got better.
1: But the doctors told us that it would happen again if we ever had another pregnancy. So we just made the choice to not have uh, any more children. But then... At the age of eight years old, my daughter began having dreams. In her dream, these three little boys were her brothers, and the youngest was always in danger. Over two years of having these repetitive dreams, I began to stop and like kind of listen, and we began to look into what are our options, what's the options of adopting. But we don't have you know, $30,000 to adopt a kid from overseas. But when we met this family that adopted through foster care, we found out that not only is the adoption process free, also like their health insurance is covered through the government. And if they go to a state college, then that's covered. So I was like, oh wow, it felt like I didn't have any more excuses.
2: When we went into foster care, they were like, what do you have to offer? And I was like, I have two things I can offer children. I have time and I have love
1: our very first call that we got after getting certified and going through all the process for these three little boys and we absolutely knew because of my daughter's dreams that these were our our sons these were our children from the very beginning
2: when we got the boys i was like i got time and love but i didn't know they would take um mental sanity so
1: they had been raised in a meth lab they were out in the woods there's been a lot of neglect in their lives and no other foster home was able to care for them because they were just absolutely too wild. There was this moment after we brought the boys into our home. One of the boys began, he began to, you know, his eyes began to roll back in the back of his head, and um, he was just laughing, this weird laugh. And my daughter looked up at my wife. Mom, I think that's a demon. <laughs> I think one of these boys has a demon. And I just laid over top of him, and I told Every demon in hell, I said, you have no right to this child any longer. He is under my roof and he is under my name. I just understood in that moment, you know, exactly what the father has done for us, that he covers us and he covers us with his name and it drives out all the darkness I was goofing off with the kids, and I said, okay, it's Father's Day. You all have to go around the table and say one one thing that you absolutely love about me. (laughs) And uh, they ate it up. Yeah, they, they loved it, but it got to my son, Jared, and it actually hit me a little bit off guard, and I actually started kind of tearing up. I thought this was supposed to be a fun joke, but Jared goes, he goes, Dad, the thing I love the most about you is the way that you love everybody. I actually came from a broken family. My dad left when I was 14 years old. It wasn't like my dad was a completely absent father. I just think he was working through so much inside of him that we kind of got put on the back burner, especially me at the age of 14. Being without a father was like being out at sea with no compass. You know, when you have a father that says, I've been here before, here we are, we're out at sea. You, You can't see the horizon, but I know this is the direction. This is the direction. So let's keep going this way. After these three boys came to our life, it wasn't the last. uh, We get another call and they said, we have this little boy. And the only reason we're asking you to take him is because you're the only nurse in the foster care system right now. You're the only one qualified to take care of a little boy with cerebral palsy. We said, absolutely, yes, we will take this little boy. What I didn't know what was the amount of work that was headed our direction. This like whirlwind going to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, neurologic deployments, because my son was shaking infant. At a year and a half, he was completely normal, but his caregiver shook him and threw him into a wall and it fractured his skull. A lot of damage happened to his brain. They began to tell me all the things that Roddy would never do. He'll never eat, he'll never be able to see, he'll never walk, he'll never be able to connect with anyone. And by the end, they came back to me and they said, do you still want him? The amount of work, it began to really wear me down. I walked over to my wife and I was like, Ivy, I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I do not know if we can keep Rodrigo. At a very young age, you know, I'd had people tell me, oh, you know, you have a heavenly father. Your God is your your heavenly father. I just remember feeling almost kind of lonely in that? I was like, okay, God, I know you're there, but where's the, like, sometimes I just want somebody to, like, you know, like, hold me. I got in the car, God, if you really want me to keep this child, if this really is my son, then I need a sign, I need a sign. And I look up, and they had just put up this big, giant billboard. And on this billboard, was this man who had pushed his son with cerebral palsy through marathons. And it said like, father, been behind son through like 50 marathons. It was this big giant billboard in on the road that I on my commute that I normally would take every day. And I remember looking up at that and I go, God, you actually gave me a literal sign, a billboard. And I just broke down in the car and I think I wept all the way to his appointment. And I just felt this like peace come over me and this new wind in my spirit that, okay, he is my son, and I'm not alone in this. My father, who's been behind me, who's pushed me through so many struggles, he's with me in this moment, and we can do this together.
2: So... I really thought we were done. We had three, then we got Roddy Boy, and then um, I had this dream of this little black boy, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I said, Lord, if that little boy is my son, bring him to me.
1: We ended up getting another call, and this next call that we got was for this beautiful little boy that was living homeless on the streets. So yeah, in total, we have six children five adopted out
2: of foster care. We got Mr. Shanzi Fox and we call him the cherry on top.
1: Even if you're completely disabled and broken, you're still my son. I believe that's really who our father is. He's not afraid to get down in the dirt with us. Matter of fact, he sent his son to be just like us, to experience all of our same issues and seeing us um, healed and set free.
2: My name is Ivy Ketterer.
1: And my name is Michael Ketterer. And we are Second.
0: In that video, what breaks me every time is that part where he, the child had a, a demon and how this father lays over top of him and says, he's under my roof now, he belongs to me. And I know we're listening to a story on the video, a real story, true story, but maybe right now the father is lying over you and saying, you belong, this child belongs to me. It's the love of a heavenly father. And so you might be, you might be that, that person who's broken, disabled, hurting, no father, lo- lost and hopeless. There's a father, just like Michael Ketter, there's a father, a loving heavenly father that's ready to rescue you. Or you might be somebody that's following Jesus, but your burden is heavy, and you're just not sure how you're going to make it. And just like Michael talked about that, that billboard that he saw, there is a loving Heavenly Father that's behind you. He's going to walk through this journey with you. In this story, we don't really know too much more about Nicodemus. He pops up on John chapter 7 as part of the Sanhedrin and kind of challenges them on you know, taking Jesus out without a proper trial. By, by Luke, by, by John chapter 19, you find that that Nicodemus is a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. He intersected, he collided with the love of Christ, and his life was changed forever. And my prayer and my hope for each and every one of you is you have that same beautiful collision in your life. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to pray. As I said around here, we say a lot, come just as you are, but don't stay that way. I don't know where you are right now. You might be in a place where you're healthy, following Christ. Your spiritual dynamic is amazing, and it's all great. That might be where you're at, and we're thankful for that. But you might be here right now, and you're burdened. You're lost. You're hopeless. You're broken. Whatever the circumstances of your life might be, that's where you find yourself. And I just have to tell you that Jesus is right there. It's not about achieving anything. It's about simply receiving the love of the Father. And you have an opportunity for that tonight. I'm going to pray for you. Our prayer teams are here. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you to step out and, and pray with you. They'd love to pray with you. They would love to encourage you. Amen. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your grace your loving kindness we thank you father that, that you've invited us just as we are we're broken or hurting struggling we can come just as we are because you love us and when our lives collide with your love god everything changes for us so today father i just prophetically speak out words of transformation and change in every single life here right now in jesus name thank you father for your love of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is the Life Church Podcast.